This is the third and the final in our three-part Advent series about Jesus as priest, prophet and king. And we come to this great theme of kingship. By far, kingship is the most prominent theme in the scriptures. The Old Testament has at least seven books focused on the history of the kings in Israel and four books that were written either in total or in part by kings. And a lot of what we know of human history is centred on the accounts of kings, of those in power and authority. Uh, Largely this has been because it's been those that have the power and the resources and the means are the ones who are able to make records and to keep records of their lives and their deaths in ways that have been preserved in writings and artefacts. But the fact that the Bible speaks a lot about kingship isn't just an accident of history. God's design for humanity is that we would have the dignity of ruling over creation with an authority delegated to us by God. Genesis 1.27 tells us God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Subdue and dominion. They're they're very strong words, often used in the context of a king conquering and capturing his enemies, treading down his enemies. Adam was to have authority, authority over all of creation in order to bring it into conformity with God's ultimate goal of his glory filling the whole earth. As we've seen, Eden was to be expanded. The wilderness was to be transformed into the order and beauty of a garden. The living creatures were to be domesticated so that as humanity contributed to all the other living creatures' fruitfulness and their flourishing, the animals in turn would serve humanity in accomplishing our mandate of filling the earth and ruling over it. Now this authority of Adam wasn't wasn't about exploitation, just utilising creation for his own ends. It was given to him this authority so that creation would be filled with glory in every aspect from mountains down to molecules, from whales down to bacteria. The goodness of all that God had made would be so evident that in everything, every creature would praise him for his glory. Now what qualified humanity for this task is that they're made in the image of God. And at the heart of this idea of image is sonship. Adam, in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, is called Adam 
the Son of God. And that term refers not just to filial family relationships, but to this delegated authority that he received from his father, the king. Kings in ancient times were given the title Son of God or Sons of the Gods because they ruled with this divine authority. Now God's design for human authority isn't just human beings over creation but also within humanity. Every human being is designed to exercise authority in one direction while also submitting to authority in the other direction. Apparently, uh, neuroscientists have even recognised that our brains are hardwired to this idea of hierarchy. Now this too flows out of the fact that we're made in the image of God. God himself, in his triune unity, expresses both authority and submission. The Father sends the Son. That's that's sending an act of authority. It was the Father's plan to send the Son. And the Son willingly submitted to the Father. He obeyed him. He answered his call and went Uh, and came to die. And now he's been raised up, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and this authority that Christ has is an authority given to him by the Father. And now at his place, at the right hand of the Father, the Son and the Father send the Holy Spirit The Spirit willingly comes at the sending of the Father and the Son. And Jesus tells us that the Spirit speaks not on his own authority, but he takes what is belonging to the Son and he speaks that to us. And Jesus says, and what the Son has is what he's received from the Father. So this is God who is pure love and he operates in this authority and submission of love. And we need to hear that because we have many voices telling us that authority is arrogant and submission is humiliating. God does both and they're both perfected in his love. This this beauty of godly authority and godly submission is something that we've, we've seen from time to time as we journey through the books of Genesis and Exodus. We saw how while often those in leadership often do feature prominently, our attention was often deflected from them, from those in power, especially those with corrupt power, and it was drawn to those who otherwise overlooked or forgotten. Take for example the story of Cain. After Cain had murdered his brother Abel and he'd gone out from the presence of the Lord, he'd become a restless wanderer on the earth, we're told 
in Genesis 4.17 that he built a city and he named it after his son Enoch. Clearly, he's seeking to make a name for himself. He's seeking to set up a dynasty. But as we follow the story through, five generations later, his descendant Jabal is described as the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Cain's empire building has come to nothing and his genealogy ends abruptly with bloodshed and violence and then the focus shifts. It shifts to Cain's brother Seth and his genealogy culminates in Noah and the flood judgement upon all who had followed in Cain's footsteps. Or if you remember in the early chapters of Exodus we saw that this great pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in that part of the world at the time, was not even named. But we're told the names of the two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. They were at the bottom of the social ladder, yet they were considered of eternal significance by God such that their names will always be remembered. Or think of David. David was a shepherd boy. He wasn't even included in the original lineup of Jesse's sons because he was considered too young, considered unqualified to be a king. Not only that, his great-grandmother was Ruth, He was an Edomite. God chose a man who was a shepherd, not a warrior, to be Israel's king. So this is the model for authority in God's kingdom, in which the greatest person is the least and the most powerful are those who serve. So Adam was to rule in creation by serving and by blessing all creatures, including his fellow human beings, as a reflection of God, who in his authority blesses creation by infusing it with goodness and causing it to flourish, who celebrates its goodness by resting on the seventh day and makes rest the ultimate goal for creation and all creatures. But in sinning, Adam sought to step out from under God's authority, thinking that he could continue to exercise this dominion over the earth, but without any kind of higher authority over him. He wanted hierarchy, but he wanted to be at the top. He wanted to be accountable only to himself, to live according to his own law, to work for his own glory, It was the ultimate insurrection, an attempt to push God off his throne and to take his place. And that then becomes the basis for all human conflict. Every person deep down in the sinfulness of our hearts desires to take the place of God. 
To be not merely in the image of God, but to be as God. So what happens then when one person who wants to be God encounters another person who also wants to be God? Conflict. When one nation or people decide that the the patch of ground over which they have dominion isn't enough, they want to expand it and encompass the whole earth. What happens when the other group of people down the road have the same idea? So both on a personal level and on a corporate level, we now live in this ongoing power struggle between us and God and between one another. The dynamics that brought about the world wars or the cultural revolution or the age of European colonisation, they're the same dynamics that bring about conflict between husbands and wives, brothers and sisters and neighbours. We all want to be gods. We all want to be in charge of the world and in charge of our destiny, but accountable to no one but ourselves. And there's no question that human history is a constant flow of one corrupt and oppressive power after another. We build our kingdoms and our civilizations thinking like Cain or like the people of Babel that we're making a name for ourselves and presenting ourselves or preventing ourselves from being scattered. But in order to do so, we oppress and enslave, we manipulate and we dominate our fellow human beings. We get our own way using coercion, violence, deception, instead of submitting to one another in love. Rather than being willing to lay down our lives for our neighbours, we demand that our neighbours' lives be laid down for us. Now the irony of all this is that our attempt to to rule over creation, now our relationship with creation is fractured and in many cases reversed. Animals told that the ground was cursed and it would no longer submit to him. Work would become painful toil. He'd be constantly fighting the thorns and the thistles and in the end the ground would win as he returned to the dust from which he was made. Think of Noah. He was told after the flood, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. A harmonious relationship with the other creatures is now fractured. They're now fearful of us. And as a consequence, we now see animals as a resource to be exploited rather than fellow creatures to rule over and to care for. You might say, well, um, but we have animal rights movements and the RSPCA today. That's a result of our Christian heritage. One of the key founders of the RSPCA, the world's first animal welfare organisation, was William Wilberforce. 
while he was fighting for the freedom of his fellow human beings from the slave trade, he was also campaigning for the care of all of God's creatures, including animals. So, no matter, we can't escape the fact that no matter how sinful we may be, we're still designed to be creatures under authority and with authority. Just that it's now become abusive and corrupt and destructive. Just as we yearn for priests and prophets, we also yearn to live under a government that is fair and just. Another product of our Christian heritage, democracy. Every attempt to create a non-hierarchical human community has failed. Because as soon as we abolish one oppressive form of hierarchy, it's replaced with just another hierarchy in a different form. And that may be good for a while, but often it, it itself then becomes oppressive in its own way. Now we might pride ourselves today that we've replaced uh, monarchies with democracy in our modern world. But we still haven't done away with authority. It's just different in its appearance. So the issue isn't, will we ever be able to abolish human authority? But it's, will we ever have a government that is just and fair, free from corruption and greed, under which every citizen enjoys freedom and peace and prosperity? Well, that question is faced by the writer of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the story, isn't it, of human kingdoms raging, plotting, conspiring, whether consciously or unconsciously, they stand against the Lord and against his anointed. That word anointed is, in the Hebrew, it is Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. It's based on the word that means to rub with oil. And the oil would represent the spirit who filled and enabled a king to rule with God's authority. It refers to the fact that the king is appointed or set apart by God to rule with God's authority. Let's see what the Lord's response is to the raging of the nations as we read on. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now what's interesting about this passage is that Israel's kings never 
ruled over other nations in the way that Egypt or Babylon or Rome ever did. They were never told by the Lord to conquer nations or to become a great empire. They never had aspirations to take over the world. Their mandate was simply to possess the land that the Lord had given them. So the fact that the nations and the kings of the earth are wanting to cast away the cords of the Lord and his Messiah King and that the Lord promises that this king would be a king of the nations and would have the ends of the earth as his inheritance, it points us to a king who's actually far greater than David or Solomon or any of the kings of Israel and Judah. This is a king whose appointment is by the Lord himself. And so his reign, his rule is sure. Anyone who seeks to resist him is like pottery. Uh, Where is it? It's in the next section. Uh, Like pottery. um, It's up there somewhere. Pottery coming against a rod of iron is the image. So Adam, being called the son of God, points to his kingship, but the reverse is also true. This king is told, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That makes the king an Adamic figure. His coronation is like a reiteration of day six of creation when Adam was formed and became a living soul and when he was set in the garden to rule over creation. You may have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They're thought to be built by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who took Judah into exile, including the prophet Daniel. They were called Hanging Gardens because they were built on an artificial mountain, a terraced mountain, And legend has it that he built these gardens for his wife. Now, it's just my theory, but could it be that the influence that Daniel and his companions had on Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar was king, and we see in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by the Lord and he eventually acknowledged that the Lord is the one true God. Maybe... Nebuchadnezzar had heard the story of Adam in the garden. And maybe as an expression of his his position as ruler over this great empire, he built a garden as a symbol of his Adamic rule. As I said, that's just my theory. Let's read on. Verse 10 of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Note the the two aspects of this kingly son's authority over the nations. The people are to rejoice with trembling, with fear, because his rule is both just and firm. They are to kiss the son, lest he be angry. 
His wrath is quickly kindled, yet to all who come to him for refuge, there's blessing. This is true authority, one that exercises justice and love in harmony. He won't tolerate evil or injustice or corruption in his kingdom because he loves his people. He's passionate about serving and protecting and providing for them. Now in our reading this morning from Acts chapter 2, Peter was speaking to the crowds in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the day when Jesus, in his position of authority at the right hand of the Father, poured out the Holy Spirit as was promised. Peter quotes Psalm 16, which if you were to read it on its own, would appear to be written by King David about himself except for one key point. Peter says David died, his flesh rotted and all that's left in his tomb is his bones. So David could not have been speaking of himself because he says you will not let your Holy One see decay. He was speaking of his promised descendant, the king of which David was just a foreshadowing. The second passage he quoted was from Psalm 110, also written by David, in which he speaks of the Lord said to my Lord. He speaks of the Lord as well as another person who is David's Lord, who ascends to heaven and sits at the Lord's right hand. So we see from David himself that this king will be one of his descendants He will be resurrected from the dead because he will not see decay and he would ascend to the right hand of God and be made ruler of all nations. So Peter's conclusion is very clear. The crucified, risen Jesus is this Lord of whom David spoke. In fact, he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah of Psalm 2. Two weeks ago I mentioned the Magi, the magician priests who came from the east to find Jesus and to worship him. They'd seen a star appear. For them, as astrologers, that signified the birth of a king. It would have been an extra bright star, visible even at dawn near the eastern horizon when all the other stars had faded and the sun was beginning to rise. This morning star heralded not just any old king, but one who would be like the sun rising in its full strength with healing in its wings, as Malachi 4.2 says. So their inquiry about this child born to be king troubled Herod because Herod was an illegitimate king. He wasn't a descendant of David. In fact, he wasn't even a Jew, yet he sat on David's throne. So news that a legitimate heir to the throne had been found was a a threat to his power. No doubt he recalled all the Old Testament prophecies where God promised to remove the false shepherds of Israel and to replace them with his own good shepherd. 
And throughout his ministry, Jesus called himself not the Son of God, as we might expect, but the Son of Man. And this is a reference to Daniel 7, in which Daniel sees one like a Son of Man, being led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, where he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Taking on this title, Son of Man, alone is enough to show that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. But see how Jesus expressed his kingly authority. He spent time with the outcasts, with those who were considered nothing, the kind of people that God had kept drawing attention to all the way through the Bible. He amazed people when he spoke with authority, yet he himself said, I don't speak on my own authority, but on the authority of my Father. He refused to allow people to take him and to make him a king like the earthly kings. He refused to lead a rebellion to throw out the Romans. He humbled himself and he became a servant, literally a servant when he knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. He said, the Son of Man, this great king who has dominion that is everlasting, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The only crown he wore was a crown of thorns. The only royal scepter was a reed putting his hand by the mocking soldiers. He was anointed but not by aromatic oil but by the spit of the soldiers. As the crowds ridiculed him as he was hung at the right hand of a thief, his footstool was the nails that held his feet to the cross. The sign on his cross read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But this wasn't to honour him because those who were crucified would have their crimes listed above their heads. This, this sign was designed to assert the power of Rome by showing that they will crush any challenge to their authority. So to any passerby, this would have all been a picture not of kingly power, but of humiliating defeat and shame. This one who was promised would rule with an iron rod has now been smashed like pottery. Yet this in reality is the high point of his kingly role. Here he is doing willingly exactly what he said the Son of Man would do, give his life as a ransom for many. Even as he hung his head and died, he did so with all authority in heaven and earth. The authority that he had been given to lay down his life and it's the same authority he will exercise when he takes it up again. For 
centuries in Christian art, the crucifixion wasn't often depicted. But when it was, it was always with an image of Jesus looking triumphant. His head is up. He's looking at the viewer. It's only in later centuries that the crucifix, as we're used to, with a dead Jesus became more common. And this possibly reflects the theology of the early Christians. They saw the cross not as a defeat, but as a victory. Not so much as a prelude to Jesus' reign, but as the the peak expression of his reign. See what Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which he stood which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus triumphed over the powers and authorities, the point where he exerted all authority over the kings and the nations of the earth, as well as all of the spiritual powers of darkness, was at this point of humble, self-sacrificial laying down of his own life in order to redeem the nobodies, the sinners, the outcasts like you and me. What other ruler has conquered in this way? What other, what other warrior king has won a battle by dying? So that's why in passages like Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus' resurrection is spoken not so much as the thing that achieved victory over death at the grave, but as the triumphal procession that follows the victory. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus our King, our Christ, our Messiah, descended into the lower earthly regions by taking on flesh and blood, entering into the full brunt of the battle that is human life, the raging, the conspiring of the nations, the Injustice, the oppression, the violence and the bloodshed are all that flow out of the human heart that's seeking to topple God and one another from his rightful position as ruler of the nations. He exerted his full authority as a son of man, defeating rebellious humanity not by destroying us, but by dying for us while we were still his enemies. Among Jesus, some of Jesus' final words in the book of Revelation is this declaration. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Not only is he the descendant of David, but also the root of David. He was there before David existed. David's life and kingship actually sprang from him. David was only a king so that he would be an image of this eternal king. 
And Jesus calls himself the bright morning star. I think that's a reference to the star that the Magi followed to find him at his birth. But see what Jesus also says at the beginning of Revelation. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father and I will give him the morning star. This should strike us as astounding. Jesus here is promising the conquerors, those who have overcome the devil by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, the same things that were given to him in Psalm 2, a rod of iron that breaks pottery, authority over nations and the morning star. Just as he received all authority from the Father to fulfil his role as Messiah, King and conqueror over sin and death and the devil, so now he takes the new humanity that's been recreated and made new through his death and resurrection and he restores us back to that Adamic position of ruling over all the works of his hands. Two weeks ago we saw in Revelation that picture of God's people leading all of creation in worship and we focused uh, on the priestly aspect of that but see how uh, combined with that priestly aspect is also a royal aspect. Verse 10 there, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. There we are with the delegated authority of Christ himself. Jesus said to his disciples, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is a picture of humanity restored to our creational authority with Jesus as our King who rules us with the authority given by his Father but we're not just under the authority of Christ, we're also exercising authority, authority expressed in love and service, perfectly reflecting Christ's authority and service and love of us. So as we live in anticipation of that day, we're called to serve. We're called to lay down our lives for one another and for our neighbours in the name of Christ. And we're called to be heralds of this coming kingdom of love and justice and peace. And in doing so, we will be, albeit partial, a picture of this kingdom to come. We'll be a living expression of the prayer that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we come before you now as our King and we bow before you in reverent awe and worship because of your great love for us. As our King, you came and you humbly served. As our King, you gave all of yourself for us, even to the point of death on a cross. Yet we know that as we come to you in humble worship, uh, you lift us up. You bring us up and you seat us with you at the right hand of your Father and you restore us to our true humanity. Well, Jesus, we ask that you will be at work in us by your Spirit, that in all that we do and say as we live our lives in this world, we might be just a little glimpse to those around us of your kingly rule and reign. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's finish now with our final hymn, uh, a hymn, a declaration of Christ's lordship over us. He's conquered us as our king and we're in his kingdom. Let's stand and sing.